Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Hello. Good morning. I'll say it before it becomes afternoon. Let's hear the word of God as it's recorded in Romans chapter 15. We will be reading verses 1 to 6. Romans 15, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will give to us as a church the sweetness of unity. We pray that those who are in schism and division and are justifying themselves will repent. We pray that those who are strong will please the weak and those who are weak will please the strong. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are with Romans chapter 15, we begin it, and the Apostle Paul continues on his theme of unity and love within the church of Rome. Verse 1 restates in different words what the Apostle Paul has been stating again and again. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And that was as far as I got reading my manuscript in the first service. And I went off. And I tried to explain why it is that it's so hard preaching a text like this, because on the face of it, it's it's sort of a yawn, you know, text. It's boring. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, let me read it again, and you can all go, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. But here's the problem. The problem is that today, there is no one who is weak. You see the problem. The Apostle Paul assumed that everybody knew who was weak. The Apostle Paul assumed that everybody knew who was strong. He wasn't just talking here about who didn't, didn't eat meat, you know? He was just saying, come on, you who are strong, bear with the weaknesses of those who are weak. Don't just please yourself. And generally in life, everybody at that time knew who the weak were and knew who the strong were. And you see my problem. My problem today is there is no weakness. If I were to come up to you and say, I am bearing with your weakness, how would you feel? (laughs) You know, you'd be, well, I won't say that, but angry. You know, you would not like me coming up to you and saying, you know, even if I didn't do the hand gestures, even if I came up to you like this and said, I'm bearing up. You know, when Bob was at the back, you know, he's sitting there in the wheelchair. What do you do when you're next to a guy sitting in a wheelchair? 
find a chair, sit down so that your head is on their level. You don't want him to feel that he's weak. Nobody admits they're weak anymore. Nobody admits they're weak anymore. As a matter of fact, the strongest person in the Western world today is the weak man. Because that weak man is hell-bent on forcing everybody to lie to him that he isn't weak. You know this. The strongest man in the Western world is the victim. Because everybody will go along with that man and deny that there's anything wrong with being deaf. <laughs> you know? Don't yell at me. I can hear you. Yeah, but you're deaf. I am not. I've got a cochlear implant. I'm not deaf anymore. Well, all right. So you got the implant, but you're still unable to talk normal. Don't you tell me I'm not able to talk normal. I do voiceover for advertisements. Well, of course you do. That's the world we live in. We find somebody with speech impediment and put them on the radio. We live in a time when everybody conspires to hide and deny any weakness. There's no weak nation. There's no weak hemisphere of the globe. There's no weak language. There's no weak culture. There's no weak deafness, blindness. Color blindness is a different ableness. Now, some of you are still unwilling to go along with me on this. And so I've got my trump card. We most especially deny that woman is the weaker vessel. <laughs> you know? Okay. You still want to argue with me? It is the most obvious truth on the face of the earth. What do you have to do in order to win women's swimming? You gotta be a man. Y'all know that a man just won the NCAA competition of women swimming. And so and so he's he's transitioned, all right? And so what that means is for a year he had to take hormones in such a way that he established a certain low level of testosterone. Now he's a man. But he's a woman. Okay? So I came up with a joke. You want to hear it? What do you call the NCAA committee trying to establish his hormone level? Transubstantiation. <laughs> and... I thought that was pretty good, you know. <laughs> I think that rises to the level of a witticism <laughs> and not simply a pun, <laughs> although it was pun. Now listen, think about this. Think about the fact that I just mocked a trans athlete. You realize that's what I'm doing. I'm mocking them. And all of us are wired to think that no godly man in the pulpit would ever mock anything. Despite the fact that Scripture's filled with mockery. And Jesus was particularly good at it, which you can expect because he was God. We can't even tell jokes about men and women anymore. We can't tell jokes about black and white. We can't tell jokes about Jews and Gentiles. We can't tell jokes about anything. Why? Well, because what the Western world is drowning in lies now and in deceptions. And when there's deception everywhere, there can't be humor. 
And the only place where truth is told anymore is in the comedy club. The pastor is supposed to be a paragon of deception. And the comedian is allowed to tell the truth. Because it's just funny. Whereas the pastor has a point. But if you ever notice comedians today, they actually do have a point. Comedians are better preachers than pastors today. Because no pastor has a point anymore. <laughs> you know, the comedians always have a point. What do you find all across history? You find men making jokes about women and women making jokes about men. It's everywhere. And it's the way that we mediate the tension between being men and women and the disparity between men and women. I mean, it's obnoxious. Where's the place of the greatest humor between ethnic groups? It's Hawaii because Hawaii is the, the most polyglot of any place on earth. They have jokes about every single ethnic. Jokes about Filipinos, jokes about Hawaiians, jokes about Howies, which is what they call whites. They just tell, they mock each other. And nobody takes offense because all the jokes resemble the truth. So when we lived in low-income housing and all of our neighbors were, uh, shall we say, uh, people of... uh, I mean, I didn't notice. I was colorblind. But they were people of color. And they had this joke, you know, how many wasps does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is two. One to call the electrician and one to keep the martinis cold. (laughs) I mean, isn't that sweet? I thought it was hilarious. That was their view of me. But I had paid my phone bill. They all used my phone. (laughs) You you know? So I didn't make a joke about, you know, what do you call, (laughs) you know, I don't know. (laughs) You know, I better not go there. It's all right for me to tell their joke about us, but I will not. (laughs) I don't have one, actually. (laughs) You probably do, but I don't. Now, listen. The Bible is God's word, and the Bible says that woman is the weaker vessel. That's what the Bible says. And yet we have been reduced in Western culture to denying any distinction between men and women. We have decided that we define our own personhood. We have decided that the fundamental right that every man and woman in the Western world has is to define their own personhood as they choose. And it starts with sexuality. It's the reason everybody's so intense about it, is because most people in the Western world today believe that you have not risen to the level of individual personhood until you have made a conscious decision about your sexual identity. And the reason that that is the foundation of individuality and freedom today is that God determines your sexual identity in the womb at the moment of conception. And so it's all a rebellion against God. It's all Beethoven shaking his fist at heaven saying, I'll be damned if I'm going to let God define my personhood. You see this? But let's stop for a second and act as if we're Christians. You little conspiracy here. Okay, social media isn't listening. The buses will wait. All right. If we were Christians, actually, not just play, play Christian, but really Christian, not Hillsdale Christian, real Christians, okay, If we were Christians, we would think biblically about sexuality. And thinking biblically about sexuality would start with the fact that Scripture made Eve for Adam. And that Eve is the weaker vessel because these are quotes of Scripture. And so we'd think, oh my goodness, the most fundamental category of my existence is my sexuality. Right? Everybody would agree with that, even the trans. But I can't bring myself to think biblically about sexuality. 
because it denies the personhood of people who are in great suffering and pain because of their identity. You know, there are people that have sexual dysphoria. And what? Am I supposed to be mean? Is that what it means to be a Christian? To be mean. And it would be mean for me to deny that some people just simply don't identify the way God made them. And what do you want me to do? Go up to them and call them he? That's that's mean. I can't do that. And I say, well, what about your wife? Can you say to your wife, sweetie, let me make this decision because you're the weaker vessel. And you say, well, no. I mean, you don't say what's obvious. And I say, oh, okay. Well, have you ever said to your wife, sweetie, I know what you're thinking. Can I repeat it back to you? So you repeat it back to her, and she says, yep, that's what I'm thinking. You say, okay, no. Oh, she's angry. She's angry. And you look at her, and you say, sweetie, can I be the head of our home? Well, that puts her in a bind because, you know, the Bible says the husband's the head of the home. But if she's smart, she's going to say, why is everything about authority? Well, that makes you into a you-know-what, you know? You know, it's like, what, if you're strong, are you going to lead with your strength and authority? If God's given you the authority, it's a very weak man. Whoever uses his authority. Would you all agree? I mean, Tim Keller's told us that, you know, that really strong men never use their authority except when there's an endless, uh, what does he call it? What's, tie, yeah, tie-breaking authority. That's what Tim Keller calls Adam being created first and then Eve, tie-breaking authority, quote-unquote. And you know, if there's ever a tie, you have failed as the husband. You know, because you had all these opportunities to be a servant leader. And you failed. Now listen, here's my point. If I'm supposed to preach a text that says, now we who are strong, I have to be able to have you understand who the strong are. But if on the level of sexuality, we are, we are determined, determined to deny the plain statements of Scripture that woman is the weaker vessel. I can't get off the ground. It's like I'm, you know, it's like I'm four-wheeling and I'm hung up on a rock in my undercarriage and my tires are spinning. It doesn't even help that I have four-wheel drive. And that's what it's like to preach about strength and weakness in Western culture today. Nobody believes that anybody is weak let alone that anybody's strong. And so would all of you who are strong, please raise your hands. Come on, raise them. Come on. Come on, okay. Well, you have a problem because, I mean, honestly, you know, if you think about it, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it's, you were strong in other ways other than sexuality, you know. Literature, poetry, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I live in your brain anyhow while I'm preaching. So. so now listen. Some of you raise your hand. Raise your hand again. Put your, come on, put it up. Now, I want you to use that hand to point to someone who is weak. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh. oh, this is funny. I wish you all knew what I knew. All right. There was one person I saw that did point to somebody as being weak. Was there anybody else? Did you point to anybody as weak, Eric? Oh, you didn't? Well, that's a lie. You think you are strong. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so raise your hand again. Now point to someone who's weak. Me. And it's because what? I'm illogical, too emotive? Oh, okay. 
Christians are weak. You know, man, I don't have anything to say to that. You got me. But do you realize nobody wants to point at anybody as being weak? Would it, did anybody point at, well, she's not, is she here? Where is she? Well, Lexi, yeah, did anybody point at Lexi? Where's uh, Mary Louise? Did anybody point, yeah, there she is. Did anybody point at Mary Louise? How would you feel about somebody pointing at Mary Louise and saying that she's weak? And yet we have a succession of young people in this church who get up during the service and go to the back and take turns pushing her. Why do they do that? Well, those who are strong are bearing with the weakness. And they're not just pleasing themselves. Listen, if we as Christians do not find it in our capacity to think and speak of the weakness of women, we are liars. We are liars who have been intimidated by social media and all the idiots of the world to get us to go along with their conspiracy to deny the distinctions that God has made. Every single time we watch a movie with a man beating up, a woman beating up on a man, and we don't find ourselves revulsed by it, we're lying. And we're not even lying to anybody else, we're lying to ourselves. We're acting as if this is possible, and you say, well, it is possible, remember jail. And I say, oh, yeah, 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 remember Deborah. We're idiots. We act as if the, the, the abnormal is the normal, and we lift up the abnormal until that's all anybody can see and act as if that's, that's average, that's normal, that's natural, and it's not. We all know that. We all know the expression, the exception that proves the rule. And so we go through life denying what is obvious to anybody, which is, and I've done this before, <laughs> but I'll do it again. Come here, love. Come here. I mean, honestly, Brian said to me, it's insane what we have to say today. Okay, come here. This is my wife. Uh, <laughs> you get the point? I mean, I love her and everything, but she's weak. <laughs> We've been fighting this last week. Pray for us. Or maybe I should say, pray for me. <laughs> yeah, she says that's what happens when you do a marriage conference. <laughs> if we start with the most fundamental distinction that God has used to mark us as his people from the womb, from the moment of conception, which is that the woman is the weaker vessel. If we refuse to acknowledge this and to confess it publicly on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, if we refuse to have this be our glory, we have real women in this congregation. Women! You know, I've come to realize watching the NCAA tournament that I wish I had never switched from AT&T to Verizon because AT&T has feminine women and Verizon doesn't. I mean, honestly, I just, oh, it kills me. And then the AT&T commercials come on and it's like, oh, that woman, oh yeah, a feminine woman, oh, and she's not stupid and the other woman's smart, but she has a certain feminine deference. Any of you men just ache for the days when there was something deferential about femininity? Any of you men? Oh no, you're not going to raise your hand about that one. 
What, what about a woman should be deferential? It's like, nothing. Sorry. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. Don't you dare defer to anybody. You are woman. Here you roar in numbers too big to ignore. You, you who are strong are to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk about woman as God made her. And I'm going to say, listen, when I talk about woman being the weaker vessel, how many of you men feel that your wife is weaker than you are? Now, I'm talking in a whole different realm now. How many of you men have had success saying no to your wife in front of your children? I, I haven't. Have any of the rest of you had success saying no to your children when your wife disapproves? Any of you? Huh? Now, why is that? Is that because she's so weak? Well, it has to do with her carrying you or your children in her womb for nine months or nursing the baby that you adopted and living in the psyche of that child every moment of every day. And that child only has eyes for his mother until he becomes an adolescent. And even then, he has a preferential option for the woman, for his mother. And so maybe part of the reason God gave men authority in the home is because otherwise it would truly be hopeless. I mean, honestly. Can we please, as Christians, go back and recover Scripture? Can we please embrace manhood and womanhood as God made it? Is it really demeaning to woman that man can't make life and woman can? Is it really demeaning to womanhood that she can nurse her child and man can't? Is it really demeaning to woman for men who are on the battlefield and about to die to cry out, Mama! Is that demeaning to women? We cannot allow the world to define our existence and our thoughts. We're not supposed to allow the world to press us into its mold. We are to see what we see. When we see deafness, when we see blindness, when we see a paraplegic in a wheelchair, we are the only people in the Western world left who can say, I see your wheelchair and I'm opening this door. Because we don't care if somebody disapproves us helping a weak person. And if the person in the wheelchair gets angry at us, we don't get angry back because we know they've been taught to deny the fact that they're in a wheelchair. And that they need any help. And we know it's insanity, but we know their personhood depends upon that lie. And so we even lower ourselves to understand the lie. Do you, do you see this? That's what it means to be strong. And to not just please ourselves. We can't. We can't testify to Jesus who lowered himself to take upon himself the form of a servant and to be made in the likeness of, of men, even though all things were created by him and for him all things were made that were made. And yet he took upon himself the form of a servant. And we want to run around trying to lie the way the world lies about manhood and womanhood? We're not even willing to have the opprobrium of owning the weaker vessel of womanhood? And then how are we going to explain Jesus Christ? We can't own womanhood, but we supposedly stand for Jesus. And Jesus was absolutely countercultural in everything he said and did. 
And we're going to run around trying to deny that people are weak? It's just awful. Now, here's my point in all of this. I want to use as an illustration the education of children, okay? And I have a a paragraph I've written in here about how I have not talked to anybody about this for a year or two. I I don't have anybody in mind. Trust me, this isn't personal. You all with me? But of course it is personal. As I've been thinking about the next few years of this church, and we have all these children to educate, it's very clear to me that we are going to have intense conflict over the education of our children in this church. All right? The last year to two years, we have had an intense division and schism in this church, and at the center of it was a Christian school and leadership. That's the center of it. There are are few things in this church that are more intense than the education of our children. And all of us are absolutely convinced that we're the only ones that get it right. People fight about LCA versus Twin Oaks or whatever that thing is called, and then public school versus Cedars and, you know, all this stuff. Or you sent your, well, he, you, you, what, what, you know, we fight over curriculum. You know, are you Charlotte, you classical co-op? You We fight and fight and fight. But of course, we're so sotto voce in our fights. You know, well, you know, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just sort of hiccups in our intonations and kind of turning aways and, you know. In other words, we're delicate in the way we fight. But trust me, I know you fight. And one of the places that women... Well, not one place. The place women fight most is over the education of their children. I don't think anything is as intense to women as the education of their children. Okay? Anybody want to disagree with me on this? I don't think so. Yeah. All right. I'm doing well. And what's interesting is the weak, their mother is adamant in fighting for that weak child, and the strong, their mother is adamant in fighting for that child. And so if you've got a child that's like gifted, whatever the heck that means, <laughs> oh boy, you better have him in a university career. AP, that that child better be going in the next higher reading group. What's wrong with a teacher that that teacher hasn't recognized that your child is gifted and put them in the higher reading group, you know? And if your child is handicapped or differently abled or whatever the euphemism we're using, we used to say retarded. which I think we can still say about certain plants in the springtime. (laughs) Okay. Oh, that mother demands that child be mainstreamed even if every other child in that classroom can't even hear the teacher because their child is screaming and banging the blackboard. You know, but that child's mainstreamed. And so the mothers of the handicapped children oppress the mothers of the gifted children and their children. Mothers of the gifted children oppress the handicapped. There's not even a thought that God gives gifts to the gifted child to serve the needs of the handicapped child. Because our whole goal with our children is that they will be all that they can be. It's just so so disgusting. If you have a strong child who's gifted, the only thing you should be concerned about is whether your gifted child spends his life serving the needs of the mathematical idiot. Dunce, that's me. You know, why do you think your child's so good at math? To help Tim Bailey. I, I still find it incomprehensible, math. 
And here's an idea. Shouldn't the gifted help me? You say, well, yeah, but you have other gifts that make you, you know, and so it's not humiliating to you to confess that you're a math dunce. I say, well, I cried about it in high school. I mean, honestly, I just, I gave it time. I didn't give time to anything else in high school. But algebra, oh yeah, buddy. It didn't help, I cried. Why would we take beauty and mathematical genius and use them to get a leg up on other mothers? And that's what we do. That's exactly what we do. And it's twisted. And I've watched it my whole ministry. Your children do not belong to you. They belong to Jesus. And they are not given to you to show your superiority to other mothers. No. You are not to please yourself. And you say, oh, I'm not pleasing myself. I'm just trying to give equal opportunity to my, my, my daughter. I say, no, 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 no. Your daughter doesn't like what you do. Your daughter wishes you'd chill out and let your daughter be humble. Your daughter doesn't have to live out your aspirations. You actually, you actually don't have to have your daughter go to Hillsdale. Okay? Your daughter can go to Ivy Tech. I've just given ollie ollie in free to all of you. If your children go to Ivy Tech, that's fine. Because if they go to Ivy Tech, you know, here's a secret. Put your fingers in your ears. Okay. This is my Hillsdale corner here. If your daughter goes to Ivy Tech, she might be humble. Y'all hear me? We are the people of God. And if Jesus has lowered himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, on what basis do we use the education curriculum of our children to fight with each other and prove our superiority? It is disgusting. Years from now, when I, Mary Lee and I have been gone a long time, you remember what I say. Do not fight over education. And you say, well, does that mean it doesn't matter if you're educated? And I say, is there anything about me that has ever indicated to you that I'm not proud of my vocabulary? Is there anything that indicates to you that I am not deep into souls and eats in? My lifeblood is reading. I don't know where I would live if I couldn't read dead men. My point is not for us to denigrate the value of education. My point is for us not to use education and reading to get a leg up on other people. We're to use it to serve other people. Are you all with me? You're with me. Now, one other thing here. Do you notice in our text that it says, for even Christ didn't please himself, but it's written, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, what, it, what just happened there? The Apostle Paul, incidentally, in dealing with the division of the church, quotes the Old Testament. Now, if that wasn't in upper caps, is it? Yes. If that wasn't in all caps... Would any of you idiots? No, it's a quote if he hadn't said as it's written. And you say, well, no, but it says, you know, it's written. So, it, so as it is written, I say, okay, fine. Where is it written then? Come on. Where? Okay. Now we're talking, the theme here is education. The Apostle Paul has just done what the entire Western world and Christendom did, which was 
the shared curriculum of the Western world was actually scripture. Okay? And so it seems to me that the absolute beginning place of an educated mind is knowledge of scripture. I mean, that would have to be the heart of the Western tradition, wouldn't it? I defy you to tell me you would have known that was a quote from scripture unless it said, as it is written. I defy anybody here to tell me they would have known it. And so you say, well, but it says, as it is written. I say, okay, where is it written? Anybody want to say? It's written in Psalm 69. Now, what else is written in Psalm 69? It's a messianic psalm. Well, let me read it to you. It says in Psalm 69, I've got to find it somewhere in this manuscript. And I have a point. Picking up with verse 7, because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Are you ready for this? You ready? For zeal for your house has consumed me. Now, why am I reading this? And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's a riddle. Why am I reading that to you? Well, because you were going to say that the only reason we know it is because it says it is written. So now let me read to you from the Gospel of John, the second chapter. Jesus And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You got the picture here. This is the Jesus who, at his essence, is gentle and lowly. Okay. And he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And then it says in John chapter 2, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I mean, guys, what on earth is our curriculum for our children? Would any of our children been educated enough to know that, oh yeah, buddy, I have it. You remember in Psalms how David wrote about zeal for your house will consume you. That's why he did it, you see. Can you even imagine any of your children saying that? Well, you say, yeah, but these guys had an Oxford education. You know, they had Boston Latin school. They had Charlotte Mason. They had Cedars. They had Seven Oaks. They say, uh uh, they were fishermen from Galilee. Every conceit we have in the Western world is false. We are not educated because we do not know Scripture. I keep telling you that all the hoopla that we're involved in about education is simply aspirational. There's nothing that marks you more as superior to other people as the degrees you have and where you got them. And what really matters is that we know Scripture, because if we don't know Scripture, we will not have hope. Perseverance without Scripture doesn't equal hope. 
And I cannot tell you now that I'm actually reading the Bible every day. <laughs> How many years that was in coming? Every single day you read the words of Scripture and First, you're shocked by how contrary to everything you are, it is. You know, it's like, how far do you have to go in our text this morning to see how contrary we are to it? You know, it just assumes weakness and strength. Well, I'm not strong, are you, Jonathan? No, 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 I'm not strong. No, no. Josiah's strong. Then we come and we see how Scripture is quoted. We see it telling us that we should take Jesus as our model of not pleasing ourselves. We think about how Jesus didn't please himself. Oh, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's so beautiful. It's much better than talking. I mean, who could make up the story of Jesus? I mean, the very people who their entire holy book pointed to him out loud couldn't see it, let alone coming up with it as a fiction. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. You know, moms, if you really want to have a principle, make your principle scripture. Make it scripture. You know, I don't... I don't, think, I don't think I've told you this story for many years. But when I was in eighth grade, um, my parents told me that I had to memorize Isaiah 53. It wasn't because of church. Church didn't do this. And I've never been good at rote memory, all right? And... Month after month, I did not memorize Isaiah 53. And the conflict was getting more and more intense. I knew I had to do it, but I didn't do it. And what I remember is just two things. Well, three. I remember the conflict. It was, it was this black cloud that constantly hung over my relationship with my parents for, I think, a year. Then I remember that my cousin John was at Wheaton. He came out and we'd play Frisbee every Sunday out in the front yard after dinner. And that Sunday, I remember, he told me to get the Bible and come with him. And so we walked down Schick Road to a bridge over a actually good-sized creek, larger than the Ummel's Creek, the Beaver Creek. Really a good size with a lot of water in it. And we sat down in the grass, the tall grass next to the creek, and John, as a college student, <laughs> helped me memorize Isaiah 53. I was in eighth grade. He was in college. So isn't that beautiful? Those who are strong, don't please yourself. You can imagine all the things he would rather have done. But then the other thing I remember is, I've never forgotten Isaiah 53. I could not recite it all to you. I could recite a lot of it to you. But you wouldn't believe how scripture you've memorized will come into your mind and protect you from sin and strengthen your unbelief at the weirdest times. The memorization of Scripture is never wasted. Never. Never wasted. I've told you before another story, which is I was a young father and a new husband, and UW-Madison has a hill called Bascom Hill. And 
It's grass with sidewalks crossing it and going along the edge. It's beautiful. It goes up like this. And it was springtime. And every bit of flesh on that campus came out. And I mean, oh my. Women won't understand, but men will. (laughs) It was like the fires of hell were breathing on me. I was married. You know, it wouldn't have been right anyhow, but I was married. And I knew my heart. And I couldn't tolerate it. I could not stop looking. You know? Well, so what did I do? Well, (laughs) I had to lower myself and memorize Psalm 1. There was nothing else to do for it. And so I began to memorize Psalm 1. Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day by day and night. He shall be like a tree. And so, you know, I'd be walking in the flesh pots. I go, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the I mean, really, it was, I didn't do that volume. But in my brain, that was the volume. And guess what? My lust vanished. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful. And here the apostle is dealing with division in the church. And he can't get people to love each other and to do what helps somebody else instead of themselves. And so he says, oh, come on, you guys. Jesus, you know. You remember what it says in Scripture. You know, it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He identified with his father. He took the reproach of the world against his father, and he brought it on himself which is what we won't do on social media. None of us will ever admit what Scripture says about anything. And then it goes on and it says, whatever is written, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's what I had as I walked. Okay? Now, now, right here, this is a benediction. He's calling down God's blessing. And every time I listen to Romans, I always think I'm coming to the end of Romans. When I hear this, now may, you know, it's like, oh, benediction. It's the end, but he's a good preacher. (laughs) And he, he says he's coming to an end, and he still has a ways to go. All right? Now... May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, so he he wrote scripture, and it's perseverance and encouragement. May the God, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you, in other words, this is a gift of God, to be of the same mind. In other words, God has to give us a common mind. May he grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. So it's not the mindless uniformity of opinion of social media, because social media is not according to Christ Jesus. In other words, unity for unity's sake is worthless if it's not according to Christ Jesus. May you be of one mind according to Christ Jesus, qualification, all right? So that, all right, what's the purpose? He wants us to be of one of mind. Well, here's the purpose. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember how I tell you I just love Scripture because it's just so contrary to me. Now, how is our brain and personhood and being and conceits contrary to this? This is just oneness. This is like pluralism and diversity and unity and, you know, it's like, but no, it's not actually pluralism or diversity. Because what it says is one mind, okay, one accord, and one voice. Diversity is not being celebrated here. 
Unity is being celebrated here. And if you're honest, you will admit that the unity that is described here is heinous to us today. It is exactly what we fall all over ourselves trying to deny about Christians, that we have one mind, one accord, and one voice. And so we run all over telling everybody how we're revoiced. What is revoicing? Well, it's when you change the tone of the organ pipes. It's, it's revoicing. It's not unity. It's certainly not one voice, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's a whole panoply of expressions of sexual identity. And a truly Christian culture will give perfect freedom to everybody to revoice sexually in a way that conforms to their inner woman, man, their inner chihuahua. You realize that Peter Singer has done for species what everybody has done for sexuality. There's not even a distinction between man and animal anymore. We are not willing to be indistinguishable from the crowd. Everything we do is intended to show we're different. Now, some of you are different. And it's delightful. It's delightful for a woman to be feminine today, and it's delightful for people to be humble and fit in. But those of you who are younger know that the whole point of your existence is to not fit in, to show your snowflakeism. And, you know, some guys will do it by pumping iron. Some guys will do it with their haircuts. Some guys will do it with their shoes. Some with the schools they go to. Some with the books they read. Some with the tunes they play. Some with their subwoofers at lights. We're all defining ourselves to other people in a way that shows the sophistication of our taste of our education, of our knowledge, of our intellect. And so the Apostle Paul gives this as a benediction. I don't think any of us feel it as a benediction. If we were truthful and he was over there with his hand up giving us, we'd go, no, no! That's not what God calls Christians to. One mind, one will, one voice, yikes. That's like, um, that's conformism. When you're a Christian, you're free to sing descant. So I was trying to think of how to get this across to us because if there's ever a church that understands that unison is heinous, I think it's this congregation, you know? And if nobody else, certainly Don and Curtis. You know? I mean, what on earth is the point of having Don in this church if we sing unison? Think about it. And Curtis, for heaven's sakes. Wonderful, the match was grace. I mean... Curtis, you know, I'd die and go to heaven when you sing bass on that. So I'm reading about, you know, four-part harmony and the tradition of the church in unison, and it's hilarious because they come on this old English document, and it's about architecture, but he goes on at great length about singing in churches, all right? And he's talking about unison, he's talking about harmony, he's talking about when unison, he's talking about the terrible state of cathedral choirs. He's saying that in no cathedral in England, do they have even 10 bases in the choir? <laughs> you know, and I'm channeling Curtis, you know, well, he, Curtis should go back then. They needed him and they got paid well, you know. Just a thought. So anyhow, 
This guy talks about the horror of singing parts in the church at that time. And he refers to it as trying to corral a bunch of sheep on a hillside in Wales. That's the image he uses. And so you think about how when we sing, some of us are monotone. Some of us aren't monotone except when we go up high, and this was Mary Lee's mother. She'd be right with everybody until a note jumped. And she never knew how high to jump. And she was always jumping generally higher than anybody else jumped. And she's just going, Rip! you know? Some are basses. Some are baritones. Some are tenors. Some are altos. Some are sopranos. Some are metro. You know, all these different varieties of voices. And so he says, with one voice. Well, we can't even agree about what unison is. You know, which octave is it in, you know? We don't know. And furthermore, are you really going to suppress Curtis and Don? Why would that be Christian? If God's given people different abilities, why not let them shine? Then he goes on and he says, look, if you really want people to be able to sing in unison, one thing that helps is to have an organ. Then he says, but typically, if you have an organ behind the voices, and they're in unison, anybody want to guess what he says? <coughs> he says, at that point, the organ will see this as his liberty to go off in a whole other direction himself. <laughs> Isn't that what we're like? None of us want to sing unison. Do not ever read the Bible and think you like what it's saying. It, you don't like it. You just don't. But if you get in the habit of realizing that, it's such a relief. Because you know that you'll never pick up the Bible and open its pages without being helped. It will be such an encouragement in godliness. If it's godliness you're headed at. And so this text, seeking to bring unity to the church ends by pushing us to glorify God with one mind, one will, and one voice. We don't have to prove to the world that we're not conformists because we're conforming to the God who created diversity. It never squelches your intellect or your personality to conform yourself to the glory of God. Never. So no, I'm not against you singing Descan. I'm not against bass. But there should be something in us that desires to the glory of God to simply fit in and be indistinguishable. How can you deny that that's what this is holding up as a supreme good? And it's a good that we ask God to grant us. You all still here? I think what we need is the Lord's table now, right? Ask God to give you these good things. And if you don't agree they're good things, ask God to change you. Especially you who are teenagers, you who are kids don't think that the way that you will individuate is by rejecting your parents and being different. Inevitably, even those of you who are adopted are going to be like your parents. And if you embrace that, it will be a strength, and you will still individuate. But you'll individuate in a healthy way. One of the things that surprises people at this church is that even when we have college students who come from anti-Christian homes and they're about to make a decision about marriage, we have often told them, men for instance, to get their mother to tell them what they think of the woman they're in love with. And so be humble with your parents even if they're unbelievers. Don't think 
that to be godly means that you have to be your own snowflake. The goal is glorifying God, not you expressing your individuality, although I'm not against that as long as... I don't know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of the gifts that are in this church, and we pray, Lord, that each person will use their strength and their weakness to build the rest of us up. We pray as we come to the table, Father, that we will be humble and that we will not hold anything against anyone else, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.